had a converse, sorry. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that completely changed your life? I did when I was a teenager. You see, I grew up in a Christian home where I was taught that Jesus died for my sins. And my parents always desired me to know about Jesus and what he had done. It was a rare occasion that we were not in church on a Sunday morning. And I even attended school um, at a Christian school. I attended OCS for a couple of years, and I was over at Our Savior in Grafton. Um, my parents really desired for me to know Jesus and to center my life around him. And they sought to keep the principles of Christianity in our day-to-day life. I don't think there was really ever a time in my life where I didn't believe in what the Bible taught. However, as I hit adolescence, I began to have the ability to think and reason for myself a little bit more. And I started to see that not everyone around me believes the things that I believe, and not everyone lives the way that I live. And they would do things that the Bible warned against without even thinking about it. And a lot of what they were doing looked kind of fun. And so I was curious, and I started to wonder, what I, and what I believing, is that really the truth? Is that really what I want to live my life for? And I'm glad, and it's by God's grace, that instead of just going out and trying those things, I had a conversation with someone. I went and I called up my youth pastor, and I shared what was going on. And his name is Matt, and he invited me over to his house, and we ended up talking um, with him Oh, like through the entire night. I think it, it started at like, I think a Friday night and it went into the morning um, that we were, were still talking. And this morning, um, as I was finishing up some touches for the sermon, I realized that that conversation took place in the house that I now live in, um, which is kind of cool. Um, but I don't really remember much of what that conversation was about, but I do remember going into that conversation with three questions. The first one, is Jesus really the only way to have a relationship with God? Two, are the stories that I was taught and raised to believe as a child, are those 100% true? And three, is following Jesus Christ really the best way to live? And like I said, I don't remember very much about what we talked about. But I remember leaving that conversation with a direction on how to find the answers. And I spent the next couple weeks and months researching the validity of the claims of Christianity and asking other people questions and really thinking about this stuff. And I came to the conclusion that it's true. That what the Bible teaches really did happen. And I feel like through that conversation, it started me on a path where my intellectual agreement with the Bible became a trust in a real and personal Jesus. And it was really from that conversation on that my life has become centered and focused on Jesus Christ. And that conversation really meant a lot to me. And I get the feeling from reading the book of John 
that the Apostle John felt the same way about this conversation that he has in the upper room with Jesus on the night he was betrayed. And one of the clues that lends me to believe that is John went on to write a gospel called the Gospel of John. And this book is 21 chapters long. And John spends five of them talking about this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. That's a quarter of the entire book. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're going to take a look at this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples and see why it's so important. But as you're turning there, I'd like to pray for this morning's message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you loved your disciples, Lord, and you had a conversation with them at a very critical time when you told them that you were going to leave them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine what you said to them, that you would give us insight as to how what you said to them can apply to our lives. Lord, I pray right now that you would fill me with your spirit and that I would only say the things that you want your people to hear. Lord, I pray their hearts would be opened and that you would use the truth of your word to impact their lives for your glory and for your kingdom. Amen. Look at how John starts off the conversation in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And you can see from this verse how John views Jesus' love for him. Just this deep, intense care for what the disciples are about to be going through. Because as I stated, this conversation took place on the last meal that Jesus ever had before his crucifixion. In just a few hours after having this conversation, he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, put on a very unfair trial, and crucified for the sins of the entire world. But yet when Jesus starts off this conversation, he takes off his cloak and he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes the disciples' feet in just this ultimate act of service to show the disciples how much he cares for them. Skip ahead to verse 12 and see what John tells us about after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Jesus informs them that he has set an example for them. And really this example has been set throughout the past three years because Jesus has really been investing a lot of his time in these 12 men because he wants them to carry on the work and the teachings that he has given to them. The conversation then shifts to Jesus talking about his death and betrayal. And he informs them that he will be leaving them. But Peter objects. And let's look at his objection in verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow. But you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So here, Peter, who's one of the most outspoken disciples, after Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, says, no way, Jesus, I'm going with you, even if I have to die. And Jesus kind of drops a bomb on the conversation and says, no, Peter, you're even going to deny me. And I think this statement by Jesus would have put the disciples in just this massive state of shock. Because they know that Peter is one of the most outspoken, passionate, crazy disciples who just loves Jesus. And they're probably sitting there thinking, man, Peter is crazy about Jesus. I mean, if Jesus were a football team, Peter would be the one sitting out there on the frozen tundra without a shirt, with the big G painted on his chest and cheese on his head. That's Peter. He is that just crazy for Jesus kind of guy. What on earth is about to happen that would make even Peter deny Jesus? And I think it's this state of just utter shock and troubled hearts that the disciples are in when we come to our passage in verse 14. Let's take a look. Jesus responds by saying, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. As we find the disciples in this state of shock, at the beginning of verse 14, we get a glimpse into the compassion that Jesus has for the disciples. He cares that their hearts are troubled. And he cares about what they're about to deal with. I think this is partially because he knows how prone the human heart is to be troubled. I think we can relate to this a lot of times when we face trials in our life or things not going our way or even persecution from other people. Our, our hearts oftentimes tend 
to imagine the worst possible circumstance and wonder, why is this happening to me? And we just, we get, just have all these fearful thoughts troubling our heart. And Jesus knows that this is what the disciples are going through right now. And so he takes the time in these five verses to walk the disciples through the chaos that they are about to endure. And in the midst of these impending trials, Jesus reminds the disciples that there is something much, much better waiting for them on the other side. And that the events that are about to unfold have to take place. And Jesus tells them that he's going to go and prepare a place for them in his father's house. And when I was a little kid, and I heard this story. I used to think this meant Jesus was going to go out and he was going to put on his yellow hard hat and he was going to go build me a house up in heaven. But the more I study this passage, the more I think that what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the work of preparation, he's more talking about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Because if you look at verse 2 of chapter 14, He says, in my father's house are many rooms. He doesn't say, in my father's house, I'm going to go make a bunch of rooms. The text implies that those rooms are already there. I think the problem is that there's no way for us to get into those rooms yet because Jesus had not yet died. And it was our sin that was holding us back from being in the Father's presence and holding us back from being able to dwell with the Father. And so the work that Jesus was about to do in his death, resurrection, and ascension made the way for us to enter the Father's kingdom. And all three of those things that Jesus had to do were really important. The crucifixion was important because we need a way to the Father. We had our sin that was getting in the way. And the Bible tells us back in the garden before Adam and Eve had even sinned, and as Paul is summarizing it in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that if we sin just once, we will die. And that is the penalty for our sin. And Jesus had to die on the cross to pay that penalty so that we could enter into the Father's kingdom. So the crucifixion was a necessary part, although a very difficult part, especially for the disciples at this point in their life when they're expecting Jesus to be this great military leader who was going to go up and overthrow the Romans. The idea that the promised Messiah would die was something they didn't understand, I think, until the end of this conversation later on in in the book of John. But it was a necessary part. The resurrection of Jesus was also an extremely necessary part because it proved all of Jesus' claims to be true. And it showed that the payment that Jesus um, offered on the cross was accepted by God. 
and the ascension had to happen. And Jesus had to leave the disciples so that the Holy Spirit could come and empower the disciples. And through the disciples, the rest of the world, including us, to live the Christian life that God desires for us and to experience the ability to share that with others. And because Jesus cared so much about his disciples to share these things with them, they had reason to put their trust in him. And Jesus cares about the situations that we are in as well. Even though, just like the disciples, we face chaos and our hearts are so prone to be troubled, we have a Savior who sympathizes with what we're going through. And he understands the pain that we face in life. He understands what it's like to be discouraged and to lose hope because he experienced it himself. Yet Jesus loves us enough to be there and to help us through it. And he provides another reason that we can put our hope in him and why the disciples could put their hope in him in verses 5 through 6. Please turn there as I read these verses. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Thomas asks Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus' response is one of the most well-known statements of the Bible, and especially one of the most well-known I am statements of the Bible. And in this I am statement, he shares three characteristics about his identity that affirm his ability to help us in our troubled and sinful state. And those three characteristics are that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The first we see is that Jesus is the way. In this particular um, case, the word way can be defined as the connection between two points. Right? A lot of times you'll say, I know the, grandma, the way to grandmother's house. Right? The, the two points that are connected are your house and grandmother's house, which we all know, of course, to be over the river and through the woods, is the way to grandmother's house. But in this case, the two points that needed to be connected are us and God. And Jesus is completely able to be the way, the connection between these two points because he is fully God and fully man. And both of those two attributes of Jesus are extremely necessary for Jesus to be the way. His being fully God enabled him to live a sinless life, unhampered by the human condition of being born with original sin and being prone to sin all the time. Jesus never sinned once in his life. And that he could do that because he was fully God. And yet, he also needed to be fully man in order to die in our place. 
And so, because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he can be the way, the connection point between us and the Father. But the text also tells us that he is the way and he is the truth. And he is the truth because he is God in the flesh, which means his words are true, his actions are true. And we know that he is the centerpiece of human history. And Jesus defines reality. John 1, 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, refers to Jesus as the very Word, the truth that comes out of, of God the Father. And what Jesus did and who he is needs to be the foundation upon which we live the rest of our lives, just like the disciples did. And I think this point is key because I know for me, whenever I'm facing times in my life of discouragement or even doubt, things like that, I always ask myself, do I believe that the Bible, when the Bible tells me that there was a, a man who claimed to be God, who took on flesh, called himself Jesus and died on the cross and then rose again, Is that something that I really believe? Is that a fact to me? Is that a fact, period? And I always come to the conclusion that yes, I know 100% that it is true that Jesus is God. I know it's true that he died for me, and I know that the grave could not keep him down. I know that to be true. And whenever I feel discouraged and I think about those things, it always helps me to feel better because I'm learning that as a follower of Christ, I need to stake my actions and my decisions upon the truth of Jesus and not just how I feel. And as I do that more and more, as I state how I live upon the truth of Jesus, my feelings follow. And that's the kind of life that I want to live that is based upon the truth of Jesus because he is God in the flesh. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe the reason that Jesus is the life is because he conquered the power of death. He willingly offered his life up for you and me to pay that penalty for our sin, but the grave held no claim on him. Because he never sinned and his death was innocent, it couldn't hold him down. He was able to completely conquer the tomb that he was placed in. And he destroyed the strongholds that death once enjoyed upon the human race. That's gone. And now the gates to eternal life have been opened to both the disciples and to you and to me. And when we examine how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the second part of verse 6, which states, no man comes to the Father except through me, I think is a completely logical conclusion. For who else is fully God and fully man and can provide that connection 
between God and man. I don't know anybody else that's fully God and fully man other than Jesus. Who else is God in the flesh and is completely true other than Jesus himself who is part of the Trinity? Who else conquered the grave and even though they died, took their life back because they had the power over death? Nobody that I know. Only Jesus is all three of those things. And so to think that there can be any other way to the Father just doesn't make sense. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it, the idea that he is the exclusive way to the Father rests in his very identity. And my prayer for us is that that's what we will place our trust in, in Jesus Christ, because nothing else can provide an opportunity for us to experience eternal fellowship with God. No other person in no other way. It's only Jesus. And I think it's so awesome how Jesus shares this conversation with Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. Because he claims to be the way when the disciples' only hope is being crucified to a cross. He is the truth when it appears that the lies of Satan have won. And he is the life even when his lifeless body is placed in the tomb. And as the disciples were experiencing all these different things, I can just see them wondering and just clinging to these words of Jesus and asking themselves, all right, life is chaos right now. I can't believe all the stuff that we never imagined could come to be just took place. But Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And I know that he's got something better. And through all that he's done and promised to us and lived out and showed us, we know that he is going to come back for us just like he promised. And I want that to be true of me. That when I'm facing trial and discouragement in my life, that I can think about the identity of Jesus and know that he is coming back for me. And in the meantime, I can live according to the example that he set for us in the word. And I pray that that's true of you as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus and for who he is. Lord, we know that we were in a helpless state in our sin, that we so often willingly go and just do. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to come and rescue us. And Lord, we thank you that you did it in a way 
that was final. Even though it wasn't easy for you to come and die. Lord, we thank you that you are the life and that you were able to conquer death so that we can spend eternity with you. Lord, we thank you that you are true and that we can place our trust on the solid rock that you are. And we thank you that you have opened a way for us to have eternal fellowship with the Father. Father, I pray that now that the way has been opened, you would help us not to live our lives for anything else. And that we would make everything that we are all about what you are. And that you would help us to be an example for others as we eagerly await your return. Amen.